Shalom Aleichem. My name is Aaron Lansky. Welcome to the Yiddish Book Center. And I am here today with an extraordinary guest, uh, Claudia Brody, who's here all the way from South Africa. Claudia, welcome. Thank you very much. It's fa fabulous to be here. So tell me why you're here. Why am I here? I'm here because coming to the Yiddish Book Center is a little bit of a pilgrimage. As an independent scholar in South Africa, I have focused for almost two, two decades on South African Jewish fiction and experience. I've collected probably a unique private collection of South African Jewish books and documents. And over the last maybe 10 years, that has become increasingly a link with Lithuania because the South African Jewish community is predominantly Litvak. Yes, I, I know that. I guess that was because the, the port from which they shipped, right? It was Lithuanian Jews that, that ended up on the boats that came into South Africa. Well, there's Africa. an interesting yeah. theory about that, actually, <clears throat> that the, one of the shipping companies had the license to carry post from Britain to South Africa, which was part of the Commonwealth. And they created ah. a steerage class. That's one of the theories. They... They added a steerage class to their, to their ships that were already going, and because they could get into the Baltic Sea, which didn't freeze over, over winter, yes. they created this demand. Oh, it's one fantastic. of the theories. And does that shape the character of the Jewish community of uh, the country? Totally, 100%. And, and in what way? I mean, I, and I just have to explain, I think most American Jews, you know, hear the word Litvak and it's part of a joke, you know, between Litvak and Glitzianas and these dichotomies in Jewish life, but obviously it speaks much more than that. Well, it's a joke on our side as well, because yeah. the joke falls <laughs> the other way for us. Um, except for us, it's Litvaks and, and Polish are Yiddin, right? Yes, right. Um, right. How does it shape the community? The community is historically very traditional. Um, it's very well identified as a J Jewishly. Um, it's very receptive to, to religion. It's very Zionist. Um, that also, by the way, is not purely a consequence of being Litvak. It's also, I would, you know, it's my, my personal analysis that it's part of what it meant to have grown up under apartheid as well, that, that apartheid made different ethnicities and different communities very self-identified. It wasn't the melting pot experience like you had in the U.S. So the, the Jewish community is a mixture of this very Litvish, very positively identified, very quite literate, quite learned, well, not, not learned in in. in but just very identified, coupled with having lived under apartheid. Yeah, well, certainly Jews um, in Lithuania were always known as sort of the, that was the intellectual home of Jewish life. Right. Uh, was always seen as, you know, Lita. Uh, so I don't yeah. know that, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure that people are so familiar with that trajectory and that, that, hi that history. That's part of, of the job that remains to be done. But you can feel it. When people come to South Africa, non-South African Jews come there, you can feel the quality of it. And I'll just give you an example. For yeah. me, it's it's... It's very clear in the, in, in the frumkite. The frumkite is very identified in a particular yeah. way. The foods and we'll just that we explain eat. the religiosity or observance, right? Right. Yes, yeah. So the foods that we eat on, on, on festivals are very obviously Lithuanian. I go, when the times I've been to Lithuania and I drive around and I just stop in at the, at the fuel station and yes. they're the foods that we eat as, as traditional, the, <laughs> the potato latkes, the blinces, you know, it's like just stuff that we eat thinking that this is Jewish. Actually, it's just like classically Lithuanian. Well, but it's Jewish versions, I think, of Lithuanian food food, just as Jewish versions of Ukrainian food and right, other cuisines, right. or even of Arab food in Israel now, you know, but somehow the Jews put their own mark on it, I right. think. Yeah, yeah. Except the Lithuanian Jews wouldn't eat that as a celebration. That's just like common and garden food for them. Like yes, they right, eat of like course. French of cuisine, course. you know. Yes, right. <laughs> um, but for me, what's fascinating is that, the, that that Litvish culture, I really believe, hasn't just stayed within religious orthodoxy, that actually you can feel it if you know where to look for it and if you know how to read it. You can yes. feel it in the politics, for example. Huh. Um, just to throw one example out, Nelson Mandela, when he first left his, his, his town in the Eastern Cape and came to Johannesburg and left because his family were making this shidduch for him that he didn't want, so he ran away. 
And he came to Johannesburg and he needed work. And he was basically, he made contact with Walter Sisulu, who was the, the, a very important figure already in the African National Congress. And, and Sisulu was working as an estate agent, as, as a real estate broker. And he knew that, that Nelson Mandela had to finish his, his legal studies. And in South Africa, our system is like the British system where you have to get legal articles. I he see. wanted him to, to work in a law firm so that he wasn't lost to the cause. He knew that this young man had talent and he needed to like, put his skills somewhere. He put in a call to a Jewish lawyer who he was working with in, when he was selling real estate, a guy called Lars Sadowski, and said, I've got this young man, would you put him in your law firm? And Lars didn't hesitate and took him on at a time in the 40s when no white South African would take on, on a black South African in a law firm. Huh. And the question huh. is, what was Lars doing? And, and Mandela, till the day Lars died several years ago, he was the only person Mandela ever called boss. And he said it was the first white who treated him with respect. Hmm. And it's not to idealize the history, but it's to recognize why did Lars, why was Lars willing to do it? Lars's parents came from Lithuania. I think even if I remember right from a town called Kelm, which was the center of Musar, with the ethical movement. Yes, of and course, there was right. a sensibility about how he treated people. So it wasn't political. It wasn't a big statement that Lars was making. I'm making a political statement here. He was simply saying, this is how you treat people. You treat people right. This is basic human decency. Right. And yeah. I think I'm not idealizing it. I'm not saying that that's always the history. You know, one can right. certainly there are other moments that are much less positive. But there's, there's a way Helen Sussman, for example, who was the major opposition figure yes, in yes. parliament against, against, against apartheid, which came from the same place. So I think if you start joining those dots between Lithuanian Musar culture and, and, and Judaism, um, you can start to see another history that actually hasn't been told. And it's there in the Yiddish. It's in the Yiddish fiction, as we were talking uh, about oh, yes. before we came on air, that, that the, the critiques of race in Yiddish fiction, which you don't find in, in, in the English fiction, because in Yiddish, people weren't fearful that, that the other powers were going to be watching and, 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 and criticizing Jews for speaking out. Yes, but so in Yiddish, they felt more comfortable and less restrained. Because it was for an own community. Yeah, yeah I, w- I was mentioning to you before, there's a, there's a well-known Yiddish story called Lynchirai, the, li- the lynching, about a uh, small town in the south and, and a Jewish shopkeeper who's there at a time when the white population turns on local blacks and there's a, a lynching in town. And the Jew is, is very um, conflicted and constrained because, of course, every instinct in his body wants him to scream out against this horrible injustice and brutality. And yet, as a Jew, he understands his own vulnerability. Does that echo for you? Does that resonate for you? It totally echoes for me because, and this is a lot of the work that I've done, and quite honestly, it hasn't always made me friends in, in, in the South African Jewish community. The, the history of, of Jewish political response to apartheid was in many instances actually quite acquiescent. The the Jewish Board of of Deputies early on adopted a policy of political non-involvement, which meant that Jews as a collective did not speak out against apartheid. They recognized that individuals had the right to vote according to their own conscience and to to do what they needed to do. But as a collective, as a community, there was no oppositional response. And that then impacted culturally and religiously. The rabbinate stopped speaking out. Where, oh, I mean, they I've stopped taking a moral this. stand, you mean? Well, yeah. they took a moral stand, but in the, in the 20s and 30s, the rabbinic, rabbinic output was often quite, um, it, was, it, was, it was concerned with the world of history and with the world of justice. So there was a very explicit message that, that everybody is created, but Selim in the image of God, everybody is created equal. It doesn't matter where you fall in terms of race or class, everybody is equal. Right. In the late 40s, that message disappeared. And it didn't disappear because Jewish theology changed. It disappeared because suddenly we had an Afrikaner nationalist government, which had previously been explicitly anti-Semitic. 
had spent the 30s being very pro-Nazi and promising to sort out the Jewish question. So by oh, the right, time... This was an explicit conversation in the 30s? People, people uh, spoke about such issues publicly? The Afrikaners did? But about anti-Semitism, yes. explicitly part of their political platform, which was wow, why in 1936 wow, wow. Jews, immigration, Jewish immigration into South Africa stopped. Jews weren't allowed in after that. Um, so is, so how, how many Jews were there? In 1936, I'm not sure, but the, the Lithuanian Jewry mostly came in between 1880 and, 19, and 1920, and people estimate probably about 40,000 immigrants, which was a significant amount of Lithuanian Jews coming in from Lithuania. Yes, so it wasn't, say, yes. it wasn't just that a lot of Lithuanian Jews came to South Africa. It was that the majority of immigrants from Lithuania came to South Africa. And, and did they gravitate towards the English community, the Anglophone community? Uh, no, actually that's interesting because Yiddish was quite similar to Afrikaans. Yes. Um, there was, in many ways, a much easier identification with, with, with Afrikaans language, but also because Afrikaans communities were often less urban and more, more agricultural, yes. um, it was much easier for, 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 for some Yiddish-speaking immigrants to go into the outlying areas. And in fact, many of them opened up economies in those areas. Um, but coupled with that, because South Africa was, was, was colonial and was part of, of, of British culture, Yiddish-speaking immigrants were very quickly encouraged to stop speaking Yiddish and to st start speaking and identifying with English culture, which was part of why Yiddish got lost along the way. Um, so there was this paradoxical, in many ways, a great sympathy towards Afrikaans society. Um, and so you have these kind of idealized images of the smos, the traveling um, Jewish um, trader into into these into these outlying areas. Of course, which is no different than the experience in right. the United States, of yeah. course, of Jewish immigrants right. here. But but except that it was in a very different political well, context, exactly. obviously. Yeah. Which is a good segue into your own story. So so let's let's go back. So so were you born in South Africa? I was born in South Africa. My parents were both born in South Africa to Lithuanian and German Jewish parents. I and see. Polish. My, my grandmother was, was Polish. And I seem to remember you're a bit of a Yankee as well, right? You have an interesting so story. It, yeah. The interesting part of that is that my, gra my, my, my father's mother um, first came to the U.S. So she left Lithuania like around 1909, came to – her family came initially to Montpelier in Vermont and then to Eastern in Pennsylvania. <laughs> oh, that's just wild. And she yeah. went from Eastern to Johannesburg to marry my grandfather. Who, who himself had come from the same shtetl, from so Vorna. Who, who makes a shidduch, you know, thousands of miles away? Well, How does that happen? One of the images we were talking about, images I wanted to show you, is that I, after my father passed away, my father passed away in 99, and I discovered among his things, that, things that he'd never shown me. His, father, his mother died when he was six, so it was very painful hmm. for him to talk about his mother, but there was a suitcase full of postcards and photographs which was how I came to know about the side of the family. Like, I've, I've literally gone to the places on those postcards, which was how I came to Montpelier in Vermont and Eastern in, in yeah. Pennsylvania. Um, but the, the, among those things is a little notebook that belonged to my, great, to my grandfather who came to Johannesburg. And they have, <coughs> it's got addresses of the people in, 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 in New York and people, you know, in just oh, goodness. Wow. The, this, wow. this immigrant experience that went from Vorna in Lithuania, some people to to New York and some people straight to, to, to parts of South Africa. And it's all uh, contained in this, in this notebook. Extraordinary. Yeah. So, so how did you grow up? How, how much Jewish awareness did you have growing Very up? Very strong Jewish consciousness. And, and, was, and, and I'm sorry, but was that characteristic of Jews in the country? 
It was characteristic, certainly, of, of, of my milieu. The, the, the community, as I mentioned, is very strongly identified as Jewish. So for people who, there was, there was a bifurcation in the community under the, the, as a response to the, 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 this notion that Jews could not be collectively opposed to apartheid. Right. Jews on the left became much less identified with, with, with the Jewish community and Jewish establishment. Huh. Um, yeah. But many of those people also emigrated. In the 60s, the political left was destroyed by, by state opposition and state clampdowns. So the key figures like Joe Slovo and Ruth First and the, 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 you know, many of those people emigrated. I see. And the community that I grew up in, when I look back at my childhood, it was a classic Lithuanian childhood. It was almost, it was almost totally Jewish. Um, in schools? Totally Jewish. I went to a very orthodox day primary school from the age of five, all the, you know, till matric. Ha- matriculated, went to Israel, studied in Yeshiva in Israel. Really? Fascinating. Huh. A- and, and growing up, English was the language in your home, I assume, very right? Very much so, yeah. Did and you speak Afrikaans? We had to study Afrikaans. It was, it was part of the state curriculum. And frankly, the attitude towards Afrikaans in this little Jewish day school was one of contempt. I'm not sure, you know, it was, it, was, it was not something we were proud of. We wanted to learn Hebrew. Afrikaans was not something we identified with. And I was remember the a very hard time we gave our Afrikaans teacher. Was that a political contempt? Was it a political? Yeah, of course it was a political attempt, a contempt. It was, it was a non-identification with the state. So one had to, one lived under it, and frankly one benefited from, from it, but one didn't identify with it. It's complicated, and it doesn't leave, it leaves a very complicated history in its wake, because at the end of the day, by that time, Jews were firmly identified with white South Africa, and yet there was a subterranean discomfort. Well, of course, we all know about dissident voices in South Africa, and, and many of whom were, were Jewish. Did it go the other way? Did, did blacks see Jews as somehow different, or were they just different kind of white people for them? I think it's, it's an ambivalent history. I think in the literature, if you read people like Sarah Gertrude Millen, Peter Abrams, who was a colored writer, there's a real sense that Jews were not white. Um, Sarah Gertrude Millen then became very identified after the war as uh, my, my reading as a response to, to the fear of, of the potential anti-Semitism that could be unleashed by the, by the Afrikaner state, became over-identified with white, hmm. became very pro-nationalist and in quite an uncomfortable way. But if you read the earlier history and the earlier fiction, Jews were not seen as white. Um, so in, 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 by the time I was growing up, I'm not sure that, that the average black South African would have made any distinction between Jews and and, and other whites, but I think, I think much as Jews like, we like to think that we voted against the National Party, I don't believe it for a minute, I think the Jewish community, many did vote for Helen Sussman and for the Progressive Party, yes. but many also voted for, for, for the status quo. Um, but at the same time, there was a way of treating people that, that was much more, you know, you might have voted for the, for the, for, for, for the status quo, but you treated people differently. So let's talk about how this became all this became reflected in Jewish literature, both both in Yiddish and in English, uh, you know, within South Africa. But I'd like you to preface that by telling us a little bit about what you're doing with Jewish literature today, because I think that sets the stage for all of it. Well, as I mentioned, I've I've been documenting and archiving the South African Jewish experience for 20 years, and that has meant partly some of it is religious, some of it is political, a lot of it has been in in the fiction. Um, increasingly, I'm looking at, at Yiddish and looking at the links with Lithuania because I think the Lithuanian Jewish community, not I think, 96% of the community was destroyed in a very short period when, yes. when the Nazis invaded Lithuania in 1941. And there's this incredibly rich legacy and culture that in many ways has been lost. But I think 
coming back to your sense of what is what is it like to come to, to be part of the Jewish community in South Africa, there's in many ways it's really actually embedded in the community in ways which we don't always recognize because we, we, we're in it. Yes. Um, my project really has been in the last while to say to myself, what is it that is Lithuanian but that is sitting in South Africa? For example, if you want to know, there's there's a shul in, in Otsun, which is in, in the Cape, which was Otsun was one of the places where a lot of um, Yiddish immigrants came to, and a lot came from Kelm, the town yes. of Kelm. We actually have a Yiddish book about, uh, I think. Well, exactly, Lobel yeah. Feldman. Yes, that's exactly um, right. Right, yeah, yes. and and so there was a lot of um, o- there was a lot of ostrich farming and feather farming, but the, they had a shul called the the, the Greenish Shul, which was the, the new shul, which was in opposition to the already established shul. That kind uh, of dynamic, uh, uh. and the person who designed the Greenish Shul, and it's not clear if he designed it from a photograph or if by memory but was a man called Emanuel Lipkin. Emanuel Lipkin was the grandson of Yisrael Salanta, who was the founder of the, of the Musar movement of ethics. So here's this man who arrives with a suitcase full of goodies, possibly including a photograph, but anyway, a cultural legacy and a cultural heritage, which becomes enshrined and embedded into the physical architecture. When the shul was closed, mm. the, the bima and the, the artifacts inside the shul were relocated into the local museum, the CPNL Museum. So if you want to know what the shul looked like in Kelm, you need to go to Oatswain today. You will see it today in Oatswain. So my sense is what, you know, what my project is, how do you, what, what tools do we need? And it really is contained in the Yiddish fiction. What are the tools that we need relative to the bigger picture of, of, of Eastern European Jewish history yes. to read the South African Jewish experience in a way that unlocks what is, what is how that legacy plays out in contemporary South Africa in ways that which have no, 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 are not necessarily directly linked to anything Jewish. So how did that play out in the politics? Where's that in the architecture? Where's that in our fiction? What, what, a, what an ambitious and wonderful project, and what a terrific echo of what we're doing here on this side of the uh, Atlantic well, that's why as well. So, right? That yes. is why it was so important for me to make contact with you and why it's so moving to be here. I really do think the South African Jewish experience needs to be brought into this bigger sense of, 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 of Yiddish history. Because right. I think it's in many ways very continuous and in some ways quite unique. And what's the relationship between those two things? Yes, of course, because, you know, it's interesting. The de- it's sometimes hard even to fathom the degree to which historical knowledge, knowledge of our immediate antecedents in Eastern Europe has really been, if not quite erased, certainly, uh, you know, trivialized or marginalized to, to a degree that's almost unimaginable. Most, most of us don't even reference this. I mean, the, the, what's happened to the Yiddish language is emblematic of a much, much deeper problem that we've lost track of our whole sensibility and history. But what, what fascinates me about that, and I think in, in South Africa, it's maybe a little bit the reverse, because we are still so strongly identified as Jewish. It's like those things are just there, yes. but we don't know how to read them. And, and we don't know how to read them because they've become so politicized. And they, if one has, you know, what have I been doing for 20 years? Why have I taken an interest in this? If one historicizes and periodizes the history so that you can actually get a feel of what's going on in a very nitty-gritty way in different eras, you yes. can see how, and in South Africa, it's been very explicit because we went from this apartheid police state and very quickly into this post-apartheid, non-racial, great democracy, which has, in fact, the most progressive constitution in the world, a constitution that guarantees freedom of sexual orientation, things which, which in, in many other countries, including here, you're still battling for. Um, so we've, we've, you can see how those periods change quite quickly and how they impact on identity. And what do you do with a history if you can't read the history? 
the history plays itself out, but you need to have a real understanding of how that history goes into place in the first place in order to mm. unlock the contemporary. And why can that history not be read, as you, as you phrase it? Well, in different ways. For example, in South Africa, um, we've spoken about this, Eastern European Jews come into the country, they speak Yiddish, but that doesn't help them to become part of colonial English-speaking white society. So very quickly, the powers that be don't want to be identified with Eastern European immigrants who are, when they come in, are seen as Semitic. They're not seen as European, literally on the immigration forms. You have to fill in which, which category you are. And if you are European, you go one way. And if you're Semitic, you go another way. And the way in South Africa you could have gone being Semitic was straight into being identified with colored, non-white. How is that going to play not only before, you know, during apartheid, but before that in colonial society? So anybody who was upwardly aspirant clearly did not want to be identified with a, race, a racial class that was going to be oppressed. You wanted to be identified with a racial class that was going to be upwardly mobile. Um, so mm. Yiddish got lost. Yiddish, which often was, you know, it was influenced by the Bund. It was, it was socialist often. That was not going to play particularly well in a society that was wanted to look like the mainstream. Sure. And yet we know that Yiddish books were published in South Africa. Wh- so when did that happen and who was reading well, them? Well, so the yeah. first person who brought in a Yiddish font was Nehemia David Hoffman. A font meaning a set of type? A, a type, yeah. Yes, he came yes. in, he's, he first started publishing in 1916. So the earliest book that I've got of Yiddish is 1916. Um, and he started publishing a newspaper. Um, and huh. he, in the interim, was he, he'd been there for maybe already, I think, even 20 years, writing for Russian newspapers in Yiddish and in Hebrew. He this was is in Johannesburg? In Johannesburg, yeah. in, in, in Cape Town, Cape Town and Johannesburg. Oh, I see, I see. Yeah. So he was informing people in, 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 in Eastern Europe about the reality in, 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 in South Africa. Um, so there is a history of, of Yiddish publishing of newspapers and ephemera from at least 1916. And what sort of books began to appear in Yiddish? Okay, I don't want to present myself as any big expert in, in South don't, African Don't worry, Yiddish. I won't hold you to <laughs> it, and we'll, we'll, we'll let someone else do that. But no, I'm there's definitely others who know a lot more than I do. But, I'm but learning, you've probably but handled more Yiddish books than just about anybody in the country. No, so, so. there are others. There are. There, there's some people who've been Eli Goldstein, Cedric Ginsburg, Matthew Krauser. Oh, sure, of people course, right. are, yes, yes. Um, you know, they're, they're trying to, to, to really do what you're doing, to preserve the books. And But there's no project yet to really start teaching people. There is. There's a small little Yiddish there's a small Yiddish academy, but what I you're see. doing in terms of promoting it more widely, we still have to do that. Um, but the sorts of things that were published, there are memoirs, there's, there's, there's poetry, um, there's political analysis. One of the things, David Volpe, who's the Yiddish poet who survived the Kovna ghetto and survived Dachau and then came to South Africa in 1951, by which mm. time he had been sitting in Munich with a group of people when, when Leivik came to Munich. Um, Leivik being the great American Jewish uh, right. poet. Yes. And, and they, they, they started writing in Yiddish very quickly after the war. Yes. And, and David Volpe was the general secretary of this group. And he came to South Africa in 1951. He had two brothers who'd survived, who had left, left Lithuania before the war. Um, and he was editing a journal called Durham Africa. Meaning South Africa. Right. right? Um, and... It's fascinating when, when one goes into what is still his study. He passed away in 2006, and I've been working with his son, with Herbert Walpi, to, to find a way to preserve these books and to see what to do with them, with, with David Walpi's collection. So, so where is his study? It's, it's still in his house in Johannesburg, in, a little, in, a, in a, an area called Observatory, where David lived until he passed away at the age of 96 My in goodness. 2006. Wow. And this, his library is still absolutely extant. And when you go into it, one of the things that you see, there's a, 
a, a bookcase of ev- and inside is every single copy of of the Golden Akite. Yes, which of course was Avram Sutzkever's journal published, <laughs> an, another Litvak Jew from Vilna that he published in Israel. Right. So yes. so Sutzkever survived the Vilna Ghetto, gives testimony in Nuremberg on the destruction of the Vilna Jewish community, and then goes to Tel Aviv, and he's busy editing the Golden Akite. Volpi survives. The Kovna Ghetto comes to Johannesburg and he's editing Dorum Africa and they clearly are having this dialogue. And what, what remains, you know, one of the things that would be amazing if there was a student here who was interested who took Dorum Africa and actually did a comparison of what's going on in Dorum Africa relative to this, this broader dialogue going on in Yiddish. You go into David Volpe's library and it's just lined with books from all over the world in Yiddish, from Montreal, from Buenos Aires, from Tel Aviv inscribed to David Volpe. So he clearly really? knew all of these people. He was in contact with them. And it's almost this parallel universe, this man who spent the, the rest of his life from 1951 to 2006 writing in Yiddish, writing about Lithuania. He, he wrote a biography on Sutskova. Um, and it's just, like I say, a parallel universe of consciousness. And, and part of what's there, just, I mean, I haven't done a big study of, of the library. It still remains to be done. But I just pulled off, for example, one edition of Dorum Africa, and there is an essay by a writer, by a sociologist called Ellen Hellman, who was one of the foremost um, sociologists of race in South Africa at that point, in Yiddish. Who would have known that she was writing for a Yiddish audience? Turn the page, and there's an article about Abraham Sutzkova's trip to South Africa, with pictures of him standing next to an African man dressed in African regalia, in Yiddish. There's an amazing history, an amazing story there. Wow, and, and, a, and a largely untold story, certainly for people in this country. For anybody, it's untold. So you have your work cut out for you, it sounds like, right? With your help. <laughs> <laughs> With thrill, thrill. Well, you know, one of the very first things we should do is digitize whatever South African imprints there are that we don't have in our own collection so that we make them available to the world. That would be amazing. And yeah, that, that could be readily arranged. And I also should tell you, just as a matter of uh, sheer national uh, pride here, uh, that one of the great breakthroughs we've had in recent months with our digitization project, you know, we've put all these books online, but we still have to forgive, forgive the image, but the holy grail of all of this has been to make these books text searchable. In other words, so you can type in a keyword and find that word every time it appears in, you know, millions of pages of Yiddish literature. And the great breakthrough in this has been done by a South African Jew named Asaf Urieli, who grew up, uh, born in South Africa, eventually went to Israel, has traveled the world, is now working in France, and has sort of single-handedly invented what no one else could quite do, which is a system of optical character recognition for Yiddish. So, uh, this is uh, coming full circle, I think, if we can take his technology and bring it to bear to South African imprints. Well, I think that's remarkable. And I just, I really think, you know, because so many Jews have left South Africa, um, they're, they're, they're people with probably quite a like-minded sensibility sitting all over the world, sitting in Chicago, sitting in Sydney, sitting in Tel Aviv. And for me, it's, it's part, part of the project is to, and your digitization and, and the technology that you've got here just lends itself so easily to it, to bring people back together through the excitement of saying, this is our legacy, this is the trajectory, this is a journey we've traveled, we've gone off in so many directions, we've got skills and energy and resources, and we're still interested. Perfect. So. And, and of course, another project is going to be translation. A big priority here, but clearly a necessity for the materials you have there as well, right? Well, I think we have to bring you to South Africa. I think people would be <laughs> fascinated. No, seriously, I think you'd really? find some very like-minded people who'd be very receptive and very interested. So how many Jews are left in South Africa now? It's it's hard to say exactly, but it's probably around between sixty-five and seventy thousand. 
From a total population, a peak population of? At its peak, 120,000. So it's a small but clearly qualitative center of Jewish life, well-educated, informed, cohesive. Very much so, yeah. And, 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 and a natural a natural ally community for the work you're doing. I really and, believe and, that. And so it sounds, because sometimes it's in these more outlying communities where the culture has been, you know, through, a, through an amalgam of historical circumstances, Yiddish culture and, and Jewish culture generally has been preserved in ways that w- weren't really possible here, right? Well, people who know the Montreal community come into the South African community and just see this immediate parallel. You took the words out of my <laughs> mouth. I, I went to graduate school in Montreal, so right. I know it very well, and, and, and it sounds exceedingly similar. And actually, uh, Montreal's a little bit larger, but similar numbers, in, in, at least initially. You know, so. But what Montreal had was people doing the work. We haven't done the work. So it's, it's there. It remains to be tapped. But I think what you would find are people who would be incredibly receptive. For example... The Limud is a, is, is a learning program that's recently come to South Africa in the last three or four years. Immediately, it achieved results that, that had taken other communities 10 or 20 years to set up. So explain because to us. What, what so Limud is out of the UK, right? It's out of the yeah. UK, and it's a learning program that happens over a weekend where people just come together to learn, either in a residential program or you just come in as you come in. But over, over the, Limud, over the, in the last year, they had 2,000 people over the weekend coming in out of a community of, let's say, 70,000. Um, this this was na- nationwide? Nationwide. And, and what, what, what I found amazing, I think I know the community well, and then I come in and I'm, I'm like, where are these people coming from? There's a real, up till now, the community has been very, it's become, it's become increasingly religious. So there's a lot, of, a lot of, of, of classes and learning for people who are identified very religiously, but people who are interested in a more secular, more, just kind of a more open understanding of Judaism and its relationship to the world are not being met. But when you provide them with, with learning, they're coming en masse. And I think this kind of, you know, if one can say there's a history and a literature that has often been very geared towards a much wider sense of the world and not just a very own affairs, very inward looking sense of what it means to be Jewish, I think there's a huge interest there, could be potentially. Fantastic. I, we're sitting at a table right now in our studio, and there's a book on the table called Contemporary Jewish Writing in South Africa, an anthology that you edited and published with... Uh, Nebraska University Press. Yeah, so tell us about yeah. that briefly and what's, what's in it. Well, it was, it's, it was part of a series that Nebraska University Press did on contemporary Jewish writing in the diaspora, and they asked me to do the South African volume. Um, I took a long time to put it t- together because what I wasn't interested in was... Um, and a, a definition of Jewishness that just separated out again, because the whole post-apartheid, the whole apartheid project was about keeping ethnicities and people very separate from each other. Hmm. And a post-apartheid anti-racist project is about saying that's no good. What are the commonalities and 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 the things that people share? Yeah. So for me, I wasn't interested in a, in a definition of Jewishness that just redefined Jews as other. Um, so what my definition of Jewish in this was not just biological Jewish, not just born of a Jewish mother, but was writing that spoke about a relationship to race and to memory that was South African, but that was experienced by a group of people who, and this is coming back to an earlier part of our conversation, came into the country in a way that could have been identified along with European or was seen as racially more ambivalent than that. And what happened to that memory of that racial ambivalence? So for me, the, 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 I've, I carefully chose pieces in my in, in the anthology that reflected that that racial ambivalence and that that questioning about what race really means. 
Um, but but the, 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 the sort of writers that you'll find in the anthology of, will be familiar to many people if you know anything about South African writing. Nadine Gordimo, who's of a Nobel. Of course, who's well, well known in this country, yes. Right. Um, Dan Jacobson, who immigrated to, to the UK. Um, and, and, and increasingly well known uh, these days, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the, the, yeah, their problems, were our, but they, I would say with both of their way of, of writing, not just about their Jewish identity, but about, you know, Dan goes back to, to Lithuania and I think writes a book that's quite problematic about that relationship. Yes. Rose Tsui, who has gone to Australia. Um, Peter Dirk Ace, you wouldn't know, I don't think, but Peter Dirk Ace is, is a, one of the comedic geniuses in South Africa, hmm. whose father was Afrikaans, whose mother he discovered very late in his life was actually Jewish and, and, and wow. an immigrant from wow. Germany. He didn't know this. Um, and his writing is very, I find quite amazing. And then Albie Sachs, who... Um, is is a very important anti-apartheid figure and is, was a judge on the Constitutional Court. I see. Um, so there's some really influential people in South Africa. Barney Simon, who was really influential in South African theatre. Oh God, this is this is so exciting to me because I see it's a whole universe that I need to go learn about. It's a really yeah. rich universe. It's, I mean, yeah. limited in its way, but really yeah. rich and fascinating. And I mean, you ask me what brings me here. I have sat for 20 years. I could have oriented my life years ago into the U.S. I could have studied here. I always had a feeling my life, my voice, my commitment is in South Africa, not as something it's, that's separate from. But, 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 you know, 20 years later, I have this archive that easily can be incorporated into a bigger picture. And it's, the time has come. This is unique, but it's not unique. How, how wonderful. I, I have to ask just two more questions before we finish. So uh, will you stay in South Africa and will other Jews stay in South Africa and build a community there? How auspicious is it at the moment? Will I stay in South Africa? I am in South Africa. Do I want to be part of the world? Am I part of the world? Yes. Do I think those? T do I see those two things as mutually exclusive? No. The world's a small place. Geographically, we can move up and down. Yes. I will always be connected to South Africa. That's that's not a question. Um, will there always be a Jewish community there? To the extent one can look into the future, I believe so. The community is very strong. It's very identified. I personally am quite uncomfortable with the way that the community is going right now because it just becomes increasingly religious. Things which are not seen as as religious often are not being given the kind of airspace that they need, which is why, for me, getting this dialogue going outside of South Africa is so important. Hmm. Um, who can tell? Will there always be a community in America? We don't know that either. But in the meantime, there are thriving communities in both places, and it's a great moment in Jewish history to be alive. So you, you, when we were talking before, you told me there was a certain element of Bashet or a certain element of... Uh, you know, right action brings uh, things go right sometimes, and, and, and chance encounters sometimes work very much in historical favor in your work. And you told me one story about a, a chance encounter in Harrods in, in, in London. Oh. So, so let me just hear that before we... we this was yeah. a great moment. I was, I was traveling between Israel and heading back to South Africa, and I routed through the UK, and I had half a day to spare. And for whatever arbitrary reason, I decided I was going to go to the pet kingdom in Harrods. I have a dog. <laughs> the dog deserves to have the best. Anyway, I thought, what can she possibly have in the pet kingdom in Harrods? As it turns out, nothing. She's got it all. But anyway, I'm standing in the pet kingdom in Harrods, and I see two people who I can recognize immediately are South African Jews. And it's just, it's funny so, to me. So like, how do you, how do you know that? How do you know that? You, you just know it. It's in the look. It's in the clothes. I can just, you know, it just looks familiar. And I think this is coming back to this, this kind of homogenous Litvak community. There's a look in the face. Yes. I mean, I know people in Lithuania who look at, at South African Jews going, you look like, I mean, I know. Like I was, Emmanuel Zingaris in Lithuania looked at me and started to cry and said, you look like my great, my aunt from Kovna. There's a look. Wow. Um, wow. So I walk up to 
these two people and I, you know, I just get chatting. I say, don't you think we should open a shop like this in South Africa? Just a joke. And who are you and what are your names? Anyway, it turns out Herbert and Sharon Walpi. I say, Walpi, Walpi, Walpi. Did you know David Walpi? Because there are many Walpies. I could have said, did you know Harold Walpi, who was an important anti-apartheid figure? For some reason, I say, did you know David Walpi, who I knew was this Yiddish poet when I'd been studying Yiddish at Yivo in right. 2009. Right, and we should just add Walpi, from, presumably from the Jewish town of Volpe in, in Lithuania, I'm right? not sure. Yeah. David Volpi, as it turns out, came from Kedan, so I don't know what the yeah. original name yeah. is, but Kedan in Lithuania. But anyway, it turns out Herbert is David's son. And I say to Herbert, you know, I've just set up this Litvish Legacy Foundation. I do this work. I'm trying to, like, create, uh, you know, preserve and promote the yeah. South African consciousness about Lithuania, what has happened to your father's books? And he says to me, well, my father passed away five years ago, and he left in his will that for five years nothing could happen with his books or his house. And I'm going back to South Africa tonight. It turned out that Sharon and Herbert were just at the end of their holiday. They were on the same plane that I was going back on that night. If we were not <laughs> going to bump into each other at the Pet Kingdom in Harrods, we would have bumped into each other at Heathrow. There was something we were meant to meet that day. And I said, if I can help you in any way, please don't hesitate. And Herbert indeed made contact with me a, few, a while later saying, come and have a look at these books. But it was, it was just being in the right place at the right time. What are the chances of meeting with, with David Volpe's son in, in the Pet Kingdom in Harrods and then being able to help him to, to, you know, to work through this, this collection? And here I am sitting with you talking about this collection. And I just, it sounds wacky, but people who know my life know there is that wacky quality. It's just there's a sense that there's a job to be done. The ancestors expect that job to be done, <laughs> and one just has to make oneself available to do the job, and then it happens. Certain things are meant to be. And it's a great moment in history and a great time to uh, bring all this about. So thank you so much for being with us today, Claudia. And I hope we can have you back. And, and I will uh, look forward to that invitation to South Africa. It sounds like a very We're nice connection. Make it happen. Indeed. I look forward to bringing you there. Great. Thanks so much. You've been listening to the Yiddish Book Center's radio show. I'm Aaron Lansky. Our theme music is by Hankus Netsky. Thanks for listening.